When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Indonesia really is a primary shaper of our immediate neighborhood. You know, it's the largest Muslim country in the world, but it's the third largest country, the fourth largest country in the world, third largest democracy. So we have invested values in all of that. So when we talk about democracy in Indonesia, it's really important to talk about it with an Indonesian characteristic. And it's all about that personality positioning rather than the ideas and ideologies of a party that's being really contested here. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf, the head of the National Security College here at the Australian National University, and it's fantastic to welcome you to an episode where we look at a really momentous event in international affairs in Australia's region, and that, of course, is the forthcoming election in Indonesia uh, on the 14th of February, the the general and presidential elections there. Before I begin, I'll acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land uh, from which we're recording today and pay respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal Ngambri people, past, present and emerging. So for Australia, there is really no neighbour in our Indo-Pacific region uh, more substantial, more important than Indonesia. And of course, Indonesia as a power in Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, and as a player on the global stage, has uh, growing significance in the 21st century uh, as a power in the global south, as among other things, one of the world's largest democracies uh, and as a country with a youth population uh, at a scale that really uh, boggles the imagination for many economies around the world, uh, Indonesia matters. And yet there's surprisingly limited understanding often of the politics, the policy direction, the future of Indonesia, certainly in Australia and across much of the world. So It's a real privilege to be joined today by two experts, two specialists on Indonesia to try to help us make sense of the Indonesian elections and what those mean. And I'll introduce our guests. Uh, Firstly, uh, Gary Quinlan. Gary, it's fantastic to have you here at the National Security College. Gary Quinlan, uh, a distinguished senior official in Australian foreign policy and diplomacy, with extensive experience uh, in your diplomatic career, I should say, former senior official. You're speaking very much in a personal capacity today with extensive experience at a leadership level across the region, ambassador to Indonesia, high commissioner to Singapore, senior official dealing with ASEAN uh, for a number of years, and of course, uh, Australia's permanent representative to the United Nations in New York as well. 
So, Gary, thank you for joining us. Natalie Samby, uh, Dr. Natalie Samby, uh, a colleague in the, uh, I guess, the think tank uh, and academic ecosystem here in Australia, looking for a long time uh, at great depth at Indonesia, uh, Southeast Asia and the Indo-Pacific. And Natalie, as well as being uh, uh, an alum of the ANU, uh, and congratulations on on your uh, PhD. I'd also note that you're a senior policy fellow at the Asia Society um, here in Australia, and of course, executive director of Verve Research. So thank you as well for joining us. Thanks, Ray. I'll go firstly to I'll go firstly to the obvious question, which is really the election itself and democracy in Indonesia. And I might start with you, Natalie, just to get a sense of what the world can expect as we see the festival of Indonesian democracy unfold on the 14th of February. I'm not sure if Valentine's Day has a particular resonance in that regard, but uh, a really important event. But what do we need to understand? Yeah, well, I think we have to start with just the size of Indonesia. You know, we're talking about a population of about 200 to 280 million people, more than 10 times the size of a population of Australia. And to think about that, more than half of eligible voters in that country are between the ages of 17 and 40. So a larger portion of young people are going to be going to the polls to help determine the future trajectory of their country and under in, and in whose hands that future will be. So I think just getting a scale of not only the demographic that will be deciding this future, but also just the mechanics of it, trying to conduct simultaneous presidential and legislative elections across an archipelago, and then, of course, ensuring that that process is robust and then also transparent is quite an undertaking. And this all happens in one day. I mean, I've, I've studied Indian elections closely, and of course, they occur in multiple phases. But this is this is essentially the world's largest exercise uh, in, in in one day voting. Is that world's largest or, or second largest exercise? Absolutely, largest. with the exception of the diasporic vote, which are being managed by embassies and consulates abroad. Most of the voting is done that day, indeed. It's it's wild how large this is. And Gary, in fact, please. between 7 a.m. in the morning and 1 p.m. early afternoon, so it's not even, so it's very tight. Can you tell us more what the experience is like? I mean, Gary, you've seen you've seen Indonesian democracy up close uh, as, uh, as a diplomat, as an ambassador. What can we expect? Look, Indonesia's actually politically in the public space, very vibrant, very robust. People, it's not a compulsory voting system, and yet over 80% of the population will turn up to vote and uh, because they, they value the voting um, since uh, Reformasi and the change with the, uh, you know, the move to democracy. So it's very vibrant. Um, it's very populist in many ways. Uh, it's now heavily influenced, of course, by social media and even AI-generated imagery, for example, about Pak Provovo and all the rest of it. So it's very contemporary in the uses it uh, deploys, you know, to convey messaging and everything else. The young population that Natalie mentions particularly important because it is over 50%. And the interesting thing there is um, these are people who have no ideological or historical baggage from European history of the Sahato area directly. But interestingly, um, the polling would show that among those young people, a very substantial number actually favour among the three candidates, uh, Probowo 
who Who's the oldest candidate is the oldest candidate, but also with the heavy legacy from the Suharto period and a military history and questions raised in his past, of course, about human rights abuses and everything else uh, prospectively. So it's uh, it's quite fascinating to see some of the paradoxes that play out in that demographic. And so uh, we'll see what happens there. Look, the other point I'd make to um, to Natalie's comments about the nature of the election is um, this is the largest Muslim country in the world, overwhelmingly. So we're seeing Islam and democracy. And we're seeing uh, as an indicator of that kind of demographic in the world, political demographic, and that always makes an Indonesian election in democracy really quite fascinating to the rest of us as an indicator of some of the, you know, the factors in play between religion, politics, public space, populism. And you've you've both given a sense of the scale of enthusiasm and participation for the electoral process there. And this is, of course, a relatively new story of Indonesian democracy in in this in this form, really, in the Indonesian democracy in this comprehensive form is only a generation old. So uh, I guess the obvious two questions to go with that would just be useful to get a sense of whether you think it is uh, mature and established, and and you know we effectively see uh, this scale of democracy entrenched in Indonesian uh, civic life. And indeed, how um, how safely, securely, how stable is the electoral process itself on election day? Either of you would like to comment on that, Natalie, perhaps? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Look, I think for the most part, Indonesians are supportive of democratic processes. The, the, the surveys show that that's the case, even if that's dropping slightly. Just to sort of build on Gary's point, that doesn't mean that Indonesians, noting obviously the world's largest Muslim country, are in favour of all forms of democracy, there are forms that are in support of an electoral democracy, not necessarily a liberal democracy. So when we talk about democracy in Indonesia, it's really important to talk about it with an Indonesian characteristic. Um, and to that, so I think there will be ongoing support for this participation in the electoral process. But I think it's really important to point out, as well as Gary alluded to, um, we're coming much down to a personality-based field, that there's not necessarily that kind of real tussle of of parties where there are stark differences between them and there are sharp public debates. You've got a range of candidates at the moment that I think are hovering around similar, similar-ish ideas. And it's all about that personality positioning rather than the ideas and ideologies of a party that's being really contested here. So that's one of the things I would offer. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd reinforce the comments from Natalie. I mean, Indonesian, it, look, it's not a liberal democracy in the way in which we would understand that in Australia, as Natalie has said, and that's fine. Its uh, its values are more community focused, and it's you know it's an evolving picture, but still, it's a heavily transactional political environment, very much so. And you see the shifting alliances um, in the last twenty years of democracy between different players, uh, how they've just moved across the spectrum from one group to another, depending on who is going to deliver a role for their people and their leaders uh, in different coalitions and, you know, the candidacies for both president and vice president. So heavily transactional. uh, And that, uh, uh, you know, we've seen again in the current election, the actual voting process, I think we can, uh, Indonesians are very much committed, as Natalie says, to the electoral democracy. It's a question of what lies below that. 
So the electoral process itself, you know, inevitably there might be one or two little issues and how the campaigns have been conducted, for example, has, has um, you know, there are allegations that President Widodo's team and strong support for Prabowo has led to sort of the use of state agencies to try and prevent opposition candidates for having as free access to public campaigning as they want and so on. Uh, that may or may not be the case. There are certainly the allegations about that. But the actual process of voting itself, I think we can feel extremely confident about. But Indonesian democracy, um, as it's developed, is very much still reflects um elite processes which were agreed after the fall of Suharto um, uh, as the basis, you know, the rules and the selection of candidates and how that kind of local processes are implemented all reflects really an elite hold on those kind of behind-the-scenes factors which really do determine the quality of democracy at the end of the day. Um, and, I, I, you know, we can talk perhaps a bit later about, you know, the, democracy as such in Indonesia. Uh, I think it's probably reached its high watermark a few years ago. Um, and Widodo's, you know, particularly his latest period in government, has led to a sort of um, uh, a reduction in the kind of institutional democracy and openness, transparency that we would want to see. That has changed a bit, and that sets up a picture for the future for whoever the leader is, of course. Yeah. We set the stage, so let's pull back the curtain and look at the, the cast of players, uh, the, the key actors, and, of course, this is uh, a three-way race, in effect, uh, and we've already named uh, not only the, uh, the oldest of the three candidates but, uh, in many ways, the candidate with those deep connections to uh, a pre-democratic um, order in Indonesia, uh, Prabowo Subianto. But it would be useful, um, maybe you kick off, Gary, and then we'll go back to Natalie to get a sense of who's who. Uh, what do they claim to stand for and how how are they different? But also, as we have that conversation, it would be good to understand where are we coming from. Um, some, some observations as well on the uh, the Indonesia under uh, President uh, Jokowi, under President Widodo over the past 10 years, over the past two terms, uh, what, what will they be inheriting? So maybe you first, Gary. Okay, look, um, Prabowo, who is uh, way ahead in all the polling, doesn't matter what polling you look at when you sort of average it out and everything else, he really does have at the moment a very substantial lead um, with polling uh, uh, in the 40%, you know, whether it's 43 or 45 or 46%, um, who knows? It appears to be increasing in his favour. He needs to get over 50% of the vote uh, in the first round. This is the first round uh, um, uh, of the election. There can be a second round if no one gets a majority, over 50% on the 14th of February. Um, he, um, he He's the, the candidate who's in front. The second candidate down in the 20% is probably Anis Baswedan, the former governor of Jakarta, and he'd been an education minister and a university rector in the past. Um, and in third place at the moment probably is Gadja uh, Pranowo, who has been the governor of central uh, Java uh, for two terms. Those two latter candidates are in their 50s and have been sort of technocrats 
there have been many things besides, but being technocrats with a lot of experience in running something, which has been provincial governments and so on, and quite successfully. And uh, uh, Anis Baswadar, the governor of uh, Jakarta, had a lot of success during COVID. He had a lot of success in managing problems and issues within Jakarta itself. Um, he got into the role through some rather ugly politics uh, uh, against a candidate, his uh, opposition candidate called uh, Ahok, who was Christian and Chinese ethnicity. And there was some rather ugly, extreme Islamist politics which came into play then. He's been very focused on trying to convey a new image, um, saying uh, that he, in fact, is a moderate uh, and a progressive he needs to appeal not only to a more conservative, traditional Islamist electorate, but also to the urban electorate. So he's got a lot of focus on that. Um, his, uh, he is the candidate who is a little different in what he said his agenda is, well, quite different in a way from the other two, because he's talked about change and reform. And he's the candidate who says, I strongly support democracy, anti-corruption, governance, human rights. And he's articulated a number of policies in that area and has said very much it's not just economic progress for Indonesia's future, but social and economic equality. So he's trying to galvanise people with a sense of a reform vision in those areas. The other two, Prabowo and um, Ganja, both have as their very clear starting point, they want to continue the articulated policies in economics, mainly, of Widodo. Which are? Of Jokowi. Of Jokowi. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, they uh, um, very much say they will continue those kind of policies. Now, there are variations. Just to be clear, what, what policies? Yeah, the policies, Widodo uh, had a big focus on um, economics and development led by infrastructure development in uh, Indonesia, where he put a huge focus. In fact, more infrastructure development in Indonesia during his first term than in all the previous history of Indonesia. Foreign investment, effectively. And led by foreign investment, but also mobilising domestic investment as well, often jointly, but particularly trying to make the economy more open for foreign investment. He was uh, not instinctively an economic reformer as such, but he had been a small businessman and he understood the difficulties of doing business. And he did develop business and economic reform packages which tried to reduce the level of uh, regulation and open up the economy more to foreign investments. He abolished something called the negative investment list, which was a disincentive to foreign investors. It was a list of you can't invest in the following things. And of course, it went for page after page after page. He got rid of all of that. So he's tried to open up a bit and he made some labour market reforms, which were badly needed. Um, and so those reforms, Prabowo and Ganja say they will continue but with some additional variations. Uh, in, they're both populists very much in terms of free milk, freer education, uh, freer health care, those kind of social welfare issues which are very important mm. and needed. They're both focusing on that slightly more than Anis. We'll be right back. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In a volatile world, Australia's strategic problem demands difficult decisions. Licensed by an inclusive conversation, the ANU National Security College is proud to present Securing Our Future, a conference like no other, informing a distinctly Australian, people-centred vision of national security. Bringing together diverse Australian and international voices, we are bridging disciplines, professions and viewpoints. Join us in Canberra on the 9th and 10th of April this year to engage with thought leaders and decision makers from government, academia and industry. For more details and to secure your ticket, visit the link in the show notes. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So, Natalie, whether it's the the scene that is set by the past 10 years uh, under President Wododo or whether it's the uh, priorities of the three uh, candidates. How, how do you see the picture? Yeah, it's interesting. It was an excellent overview from Gary. I think the winner really out of this election will be Joko Widodo. And the reason I say that is it's remarkable how many of the candidates and their running mates are either coming from current government or have some sort of links with the current government. So just to build on you know Gary's excellent overview, Roberto Subianto, of course we know, is the current Minister of Defence in Jokowi's cabinet. And when Jokowi handed him the portfolio in 2019, my first thought was, he's pretty much given him the presidency. And the reason I say that is because what Praboa lacked at the time was experience working at the national level. He put himself as a candidate and said, oh, he's got these credentials as a former general and having had that heritage of being part of the Zaharto family. But really, being in that portfolio for five years, I think, has given him not just a national platform, but actually given him the ability to show the Indonesian people he can work together with people who were previously his political rivals. Um, and of course, that stunning decision of the Constitutional Court recently, just for our listeners who don't know, um, President Jokowi's son is actually the running mate of Provost Sibianto, uh, thanks to a contentious legal decision made by the Constitutional Court, uh, of which Jokowi's brother-in-law was the head. So that was a highly contentious decision because of the perceived nepotism that was involved in that decision, whereby the court ruled that Gibran, Jokowi's son, did not meet the minimum age requirement to run as a vice presidential candidate of 40, but owing to his past experiences as the mayor of Solo, that was Jokowi's old job, by the way, he is now eligible to run as a running mate. So one asks the question then of this bending of laws and the accommodations made by persons of interest within these processes, what kind of Indonesia will we be heading into if these kinds of things are now part of the art of the possible. So that's one thing I'd like to note. And so, you know, for Prabowo Subianto presidency, as it seems likely at the moment, he's actually cracked the 50% uh, support mark. President Jokowi will have a line of influence by way of his son, who is with the vice president. In the second pairing, we've got Anis Baswedan. His running mate is Mohammed um, Iskandar, Chaimin. Um, Anis, as Gary pointed out, ran that bitter campaign to become governor of Jakarta against Jokowi's former uh, vice governor, Ahok. 
And I'm sure that there is still a sense of uh, animosity between the way in which Anis wrangled that election and destroyed Ahok politically. But in any case, if Anis is willing to put forward a platform of helping the poor sections of Indonesian society on a populist platform, uh, chime in is keen to have village funds available on a platform of social justice and democracy, that feels a little bit like Jokowi 1.0. That feels like that would in some way fulfill some of the spirit of the of the things that we respected and liked Jokowi for in his first term. And last but not least, if we look at the third pairing, Gunja Ponoro, the governor of central Jakarta, and his running mate, Mahfud MD, who has just resigned from being coordinating minister for political, legal and security affairs, former chief justice of the Constitutional Court as well. Again, Gunja is seen as one of these legacy candidates of Jokowi. He's part of Jokowi's, the party that backed him, PDIP. So again, if Gunja gets up, there is a potential there for there to be some of Jokowi's policies enacted. So really, if you look at one, two or three, it's hard to see anyone losing other than President Jokowi being the real winner here at the end of the day. And we can talk a little bit more about the vice presidential bid, but I think it's important to point that out, that Jokowi's had a lot of strings being pulling here. So it's, it sounds like there's uh, a bit of uh, backup, backup options for uh, some kind of sense of succession or uh, political uh, legacy. What about um, Jokowi's signature initiative to, to move the capital from Jakarta, uh, which is, I think, a pretty – a pretty troubled story to some outside observers, but I'm just one. I'm wondering, can we expect continuity in that initiative, depending on the election outcome? Look, uh, now of the three candidates, it's only Anis Baswedan who's outright said that he would not continue. But the issue is that is a piece of legislation. So in order to get that reversed, first he'd have to win the election, and second of all, he'd have to yeah. convince Parliament that was that was a good thing. Um, and of course, there are all these other vested interests of you know, the private sector and foreign investment. So rolling this back would be rather painful, even if he's made it an election promise. Gary? Yes, no, I agree. That's that's uh, how I would see it as well. One uh, one comment I would make, however, is um, the new capital um, decision-making about it, you know, Jakarta is polluted, too big, megalopolis, it's sinking. It's the fastest sinking city in the world apart from Venice. And, you know, it, it really faces major problems. Whatever happens with the new capital, Jakarta and the problems that Jakarta faces in terms of sinking needs to be dealt with and needs to be dealt with urgently. Some works have been done over the last 10 years, but nowhere near enough. And uh, that hasn't attracted a huge amount of, uh, from what I've seen, um, uh, focus during the election campaign, uh, although Prabowo has committed to doing new seawalls and new sea defences. Um, and uh, Ganja is very focused on the role of Indonesia as a maritime country. It's one of the focal points of his election campaigning in the future. But whoever uh, is elected is going to have to deal with the problems facing Jakarta, irrespective of whether there's a new capital or not. Now, we've heard uh, quite a lot about Indonesia as a maritime power over the years, and there are often questions as to whether Indonesia is really living up to its interests and its expectations and just the scale of its um, its territory, that, that archipelago in such a critical part of the region and the world. So that might lead us into the question of foreign policy, security policy, implications for the region and the world of this extraordinary democratic event next week. From an Australian perspective, uh, firstly, can we expect much 
difference, whether it's difference from the uh, the 10 years of Jokowi, whether it's difference among the three candidates, but also in terms of Indonesian statecraft and Indonesia's place in Southeast Asia and ASEAN and the Indo-Pacific, Indonesia's relations with China, for instance, uh, what's going to change, uh, Gary? I think it's more nuance, frankly, uh, nuances uh, in position between the three candidates. The fundamental position for Indonesian foreign policy and Indonesia's emergence as an independent nation was defined in 1948 in terms of its foreign policy by the then vice president, uh, and that was that Indonesia needed a, quote, free and active yeah. foreign policy. And that has remained the essential unmovable uh, dogma and practice, working practice to some degree or another of Indonesian foreign policy. Each of the candidates has made it very clear, as they inevitably would, that that will remain the guiding principle. Then, of course, it is uh, what does that mean in terms free? How much agency does Indonesia need in order to maintain that freedom by being able to influence and shape the environment strategically in which they live? Um, people talk about... Indonesia being not aligned. And of course, it was one of the creators of the non-aligned movement back in the 50s and during the Cold War. But I actually think it's more subtle. <laughs> it's not non-alignment in the sense of, uh, of, of complete neutrality. It's non-alignment in the sense of wanting to have a balance, an equilibrium between competing great powers. Uh, not declaring support for either side, and I think that's going to be clear, you know, and they're not going to get into this binary choice between the West or the US and China and all the rest of it. And we, Australia, wouldn't want them to do that anyway, because we want a resilient balance and equilibrium strategically in the region. What uh, we'd like to see is a stronger ASEAN, and each of the candidates have spoken in different ways about that. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, Ganjar and Anise both, uh, making uh, important points about needing to be more active through ASEAN in shaping the region, and, and Anise actually speaks about shaping the balance in the region and new balancing in the region where he wants Indonesia to be a more uh, pivotal player. So that's a good thing. We'll see that kind of um, uh, development. Uh, all of them sort of reflect economic diplomacy, uh, uh, that is securing Indonesia's economic interests through greater uh, investment and greater uh, um, engagement uh, with their own industrial development. That means there'll be different levels of protectionism. I mean, there's a big debate in Indonesia at the moment about downstreaming, particularly in relation to the nickel industry, which has had its impact on Australian nickel industry, of course, as well, uh, and about the importance of building up that capacity uh, to develop yeah, the ability to uh, uh, process the minerals, then export, develop electric cars, all of that kind of vision for the future. But it's it's protectionist. Um, uh, Widodo prevented the export of uh, uh, unprocessed nickel, for example. The WTO said, well, that's bad behaviour, et cetera, et cetera. So there's going to be some interesting developments in terms of that economic self-sufficiency and protectionism, I think that will apply to each one of them uh, and they'll make choices as they decide to uh, going through that. Um, we'll all be influenced by the future presidency of uh, Mr. Trump 
uh, or otherwise, <laughs> or otherwise, um, and you that, know that's, that's an election call we'll make on another episode. Indeed, Barry, yeah. indeed. But the impact of that, if Trump were elected, it'll be a very different world. You know, ten percent uh, uh, tariff imposed on all imports into the United States. You get economic retaliation. Uh, all of us will be impacted, and the global trading system will be impacted by that. And Indonesia is going to be quite vulnerable in that sense, like other countries as well. So that will determine some of the responses you get from all three. Um, Prabowo talks about a little bit more diversification towards India and Russia, uh, and that's fine. That's, again... In terms of diplomatic alignment in, or...? In, in, in terms of engagement, engagement with yeah. Russia, partly driven by the defence relationship that Prabowo wants to maintain and the possibility of defence purchases and so on. Uh, India, Which is going to be enormously problematic for relations very, with very Europe and the United States if, and indeed Australia, if that were the case, I would have thought. In, indeed. Um, in terms of Australia as Australia, I think uh, they all understand who we are, what we are, what our interests are, uh, Prabowo particularly, but Anis also. Ganja less so because his international involvement has been less than the other two. Um, but there's no negative or worrying element there that uh, you know that should concern us particularly. We just have to see how things develop. Um, and there's an understanding of what our interest in the region is in terms of um, this equilibrium we speak out speak about and ASEAN centrality to helping develop the kind of balance that you want in a more resilient region. So I think in that sense, um, there's some good understanding of, of where we are. Natalie, what do you think? And I, I'm also interested, before we close the conversation, um, after I hear your assessment in going to a question or two about Indonesian nationalism in all of this and, and how much it matters. But what do, what do you think about the future implications for security and foreign policy in the region? Yeah, look, I think I reinforced some of Gary's points. You know, I don't expect there to be wild deviation from the current trajectory that Indonesia is on. I think any Indonesian president who comes to the job has the same homework. He must ensure, or he or she must ensure, that there are stable amounts of foreign investment. He must ensure that there is infrastructure development, adequate healthcare, jobs, so on and so forth. So the foreign policy of Indonesia will be guided by these, this very pragmatic agenda, as well as concerns for particular issues, niche issues like Palestine or the plight of other Muslims, as well as foreign workers. So I think that homework is an ongoing project for any Indonesian president. I think where we might feel that we might see differences is sometimes in, in personality and style. Uh, as we have, may have seen in some of the presidential debates, Kubowa can be a very emotional character. And if there's an issue of the day which invokes, as you alluded to, Indonesian nationalism or any kind of sort of emotional issue like that, there might be a sense of rhetoric coming out of Prabowo, a Prabowo presidency that might be inflammatory which may cause some sort of diplomatic disruption for some period of time. I think Indonesia is an en in an enviable position because it's a favourable diplomatic actor. It's seen as the de facto head of ASEAN, so other major powers like Australia and other Indo-Pacific states will want good relations with Indonesia because it wants to, they want to support ASEAN. It's a favourable economic partner. We know that there's a youth dividend, there's a potential there for uh, Indonesia being part of the value chain for certain critical minerals, for lithium, for nickel, so on and so forth. It's a good candidate for encouraging um, a shift to decarbonisation, amongst other things. It's also a favourable partner as a security partner. It's the largest state in Southeast Asia. It's a navy. If, it, if the Navy and Air Force is consolidated, 
could be a critical player within that area. It could be a strengthening player within the South China Sea as well. It's seen as a, as a, as a good security partner. So in those three terms, diplomatic, economic and security, I think how other states perceive Indonesia is part of that foreign policy equation. Indonesia won't have to work too hard to be courted by many of the emerging and established powers of the Indo-Pacific as well as other states. And then I also want to tie in the sort of growing rhetoric of the global south. You know, since uh, since independence under President Suharto, Indonesia has positioned itself as the defender of a post-colonial world, as defender of this global south. As this rhetoric starts to get a little bit warmer nowadays, they start talking about an alternative perhaps to a monetary systems led by the West. Now, ask ourselves, where might Indonesia want to position itself? Is that just for diplomatic flexing? Or are we going to see Indonesia play a bit more of, of a re-evaluation of global institutions? And it is time for some of those global institutions to be revisited, the Permanent Five of the United Nations, for instance. But with a revisited set of global institutions comes a revised set of responsibilities. So whether we will see Indonesia step up to that, I think will also depend on whichever president has, whoever, whoever each president has as their foreign minister, as their coterie of foreign advisors their defence minister, their coordinating minister for political, legal and security affairs, those individuals whose identities we won't know until October, I think will set the stage for where Indonesia will head, at least in the short term, and that we will have to see what is the relationship, therefore, between the foreign minister, the defence minister and the president, and how that then bears out into the making of Indonesian foreign policy and its practice. Of course, uh, many of us have watched previous uh, Indonesian presidents come and go and have held pretty high hopes for what their power, their administration, their authority would mean for Indonesia becoming a more decisive strategic actor. And I think it's one of one of the criticisms that's made of Indonesia or of ASEAN generally is is uh, that, that, that problems are perhaps managed or held over for another day rather than squarely addressed. You know, the, the challenge of how to deal with China in the South China Sea um, being a, a pretty profound one of those problems. So can we expect that Indonesia under any of these three candidates is going to take a firmer position in resisting Chinese pressure? Uh, is that an unreasonable question to, to be asking or imagining? Uh, what about the issue of China's own influence inside Indonesia if we're looking for strategic balance where, uh, where, where China's not able to coerce other countries? Natalie, do you think that's a reasonable approach or is that asking too much? Look, I think all three candidates said that they would respect you know, the emerging powers of the Indo-Pacific and there is a delicate balance for each of them, managing security relations and trade and investment and economic relations as well. I think Prabowo would be one who would corner himself with this rhetoric of wanting to protect Indonesia, quite sort of populist rhetoric of not wanting people to steal Indonesia's wealth. If there came to be high-profile cases or reporting of Chinese incursions um, that were made public uh, throughout Indonesia, he might be in a difficult position to be able to then not make this a diplomatic issue. I think that's the only situation I can see him being backed into a corner. Um, but that would also be predicated on Indonesia's media being strong and fearless to be able to make this kind of reporting. Um, and under the, pres- the previous president, we've seen uh, you know, a gradual self-censorship of the, of the media based on certain cases that have been brought against journalists who've been accused of criticising the government. 
So part of Indonesia's democratic character, which will have an influence on the exercise of foreign policy, will be some of these other institutions like the Indonesian media that play a balancing role. Um, but I think that will be a difficult balance. Look, thank you, Natalie. And um, Gary, we might wrap it up there. Any sort of final observation from you perhaps on on uh, why this is going to matter to Australia and the region? Um, well, it's going to matter to us self-evidently because Indonesia really is a primary shaper of our immediate neighbourhood. Um, in fact, I don't actually like the word neighbourhood that people use uh, so much about our foreign policy. It is the neighbourhood, but more importantly, it's our strategic ecosystem. And you need a healthy ecosystem in which to live. Well, it's uh, the connective tissue of a maritime region, exactly, frankly. Exactly. Uh, so it's vitally important that. Uh, it is really um, the most significant player within ASEAN. And we, Australia, want ASEAN to become more and more influential as part of this strategic equilibrium uh, in the region, which is uh, so desirable. Um, and, uh, and basically, that's the reasoning. Uh, and we have a long history, huge history. We were, you know, with India, we were the main protagonist for supporting Indonesian independence in 1945 and in the succeeding number of years. We started so well because it was obvious to us from the Second World War how important that strategic ecosystem was. And Indonesia is actually quite full, quite the fulcrum uh, in that sense. Um, so uh, they're the reasons why it's important to us uh, and should be important to us. And it's a neighbour, it's next door. And uh, we have so many levels of engagement every day because we are neighbours. Uh, and it's you know, it's the largest Muslim country in the world, but it's the third largest country, the fourth largest country in the world, third largest democracy. So we have invested values in all of that. Look, thank you uh, very much then, Gary Quinlan and Natalie Sambi, for a very future-focused conversation about Indonesia, the Indonesian electron, uh, Indonesian democracy, uh, and to the rest of our friends and listeners across uh, the podcast ecosystem. Um we look forward to joining you again as we, we look at other elections that will shape the future of the world in 2024, a bit further on this year, India, the United States and, uh, and the rest. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Rory. Ta. Thanks, Rory. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.